For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Western history has led us to the most prosperous age in the history of humanity, and yet more and more our kids are taught to be ashamed of their country. Are you tired of Common Core, Howard Zinn-influenced, revisionist history in our schools? Do you want your family to have fun learning about history that you can trust? Do you want your kids to learn to love history? Then drivethroughhistory.com is for you. The guys over at drivethroughhistory.com have created a world of entertaining, on-location, video-based courses for your kids. They've got ancient history, American history, biblical history, and world history. Perfect for all of you who find yourself homeschooling for the first time. It's fun, and your kids are going to love it. To learn more, head over to drivethruhistory.com forward slash Zuby, Z-U-B-Y, where they've got streamed courses and old school DVDs, and you can use the code Zuby, Z-U-B-Y, at checkout for 20% off any order. That's drivethruhistory.com forward slash Zuby. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've got on a long-awaited guest. He is a very well-known writer, author, journalist, political commentator, and this is, of course, the one and only Douglas Murray. Welcome to the show. Really good to be with you, Zuby. I'm only sorry we couldn't do it in person, but it's a great pleasure to finally get together. Yeah, absolutely. So I've done a very brief intro there, and you're, you're very well-known all around the world, but for listeners who may not be familiar with who you are and what you do, can you give them a little brief intro to who Douglas Murray is? Sure. I mean, I, I'm a writer. I've been a writer all my adult life, which covers a multitude of sins. You know, you, you can say a writer when you're, you're, the, you're a writer when you're working and when you're not. It's, it's a very useful cover. It really is. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I write, I write nonfiction. I always have done. Uh, I've written on a lot of subjects. Uh, but most recently, in recent years, on politics and what I would describe as sort of culture war issues. Um, uh, I'm very keen that we spend as little time as possible in our lives wasting ourselves on fruitless pursuits. And I think there's a lot of things that are going on in our time that are fruitless pursuits. And I try to encourage people to get off in order to pursue what they should be pursuing, whatever that is. Um, so, yes, I've published six books, I think. Uh, to date now uh the most recent uh came out just again now in paperback the madness of crowds my first book i wrote when i was 18 uh, oh wow so um i got off to an early start yeah okay i'd actually like to talk about that a little because i've seen mm. dozens of interviews that you've been on but one thing i find that no one really seems to ever ask you about is how you how you got into this whole world so mm. i'm kind of curious to learn a little bit more about the the backstory and how you got into writing, how you got into politics, etc. So what mm. was the journey leading up to this? Um, well, it was a, a slightly unusual one. I suppose everyone's is. I was not particularly political when I was growing up. 
uh, I was interested in the culture. I was mainly interested in music. I, I sort of assumed uh, in my teenage years I was going to be a musician. Mm. Um, and then I started writing my first book. Uh, and I then realized, having written a book, that I was a writer. <laughs> and I suppose it sort of does happen like that in a way, doesn't it? Um, you know, you, you discover you are the thing that you do rather than necessarily just aiming towards something. And I, I started writing because I was fascinated by the subjects I was writing about. And then, then I, then I, uh, you know, accumulated more bits of expertise. Uh, and I discovered as a lot of people do when they're starting off that, you know, you, you have one thing that you know about, and then you get another thing that you know about, and then another thing. And before you know it, you've got a career. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was sort of how it worked for me. Um, my inclination always was to rush towards the things that I found most interesting uh, as subjects. Mm -hmm. um, it started off with a literary figure that I wrote about first. And then um, I was very galvanized by events of what's now the beginning of this century, um, uh, political events. I thought there were serious upheavals. I thought that I noticed that my own age group were dividing very interestingly along political lines, which was a bit of a surprise to those of us who were sort of not that political before. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, so we sort of politicized quite fast in a way. Um, and I always found that I, I wrote best when I wrote about the things that sort of got under my skin. And that increasingly became political issues or cultural mm. political issues. You know, things that it's much better to write about something that actually aggravates you, for instance, or... Um, riles you up in a passionate way, something you're really passionate about. Yeah. It's much better writing about those things than it is about something you don't feel all that you know, enthusiastic about. And indeed, editors later on discover that about you and they, they know, you know, they, 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 they try you out if you're writing an article. You know, do you fancy writing about this? And if it's, you know, you, you sort of, they can hear in your voice, mm, <laughs> it's not the most interesting thing today. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, you sort of, and then you start to trust yourself. I mean, as you know, when, once it's worked once, you start to do that crucial thing of trusting your own instincts. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can do it again and again. That doesn't mean that you won't, your instincts won't let you down on occasions, but, but you, you start to realize that that's, it's a good idea. You start to know what subjects you should go towards and what subjects you, you, you really want to, to, to write about. And that was my experience. And so now I've, I've written about a kind of bewildering array of subjects and books from everything about literature to war um to terrorism uh to now the identity politics as we've come to come to call it yeah yeah i mean one thing that's uh, you know and i think one thing that i really greatly admire about you and respect about you and i think something that draws a lot of people towards your books and your commentary and your interviews and everything like that is that you are willing to honestly broach topics that have become or are becoming taboo in a sense, mm. right? There, are, you, you yes. talk about this in the madness of crowds. You talk about it a bit in the <clears throat> strange death of Europe about how there are certain topics and things in society which are important, uh, not always directly political, but also social, also cultural, mm -hmm. etc. Where you're not allowed to talk about them, and if you are allowed to talk about them, you're only allowed to express one certain perspective, mm. even if that is not necessarily the majority perspective. So there are a lot of yes. issues where actually if you were to poll the UK population as a whole or a Western population as a whole, you might find that eight out of 10 people hold mm -hmm. a certain perspective, 
but that perspective is the one that you're not allowed to voice in That's public right. under threat of punishment. But you're someone who doesn't care about that, right? As you as you say, you're happy to sort of jump on these landmines. And uh, <laughs> so, well, yes, uh, yeah. I mean, because the, the subjects you're not meant to look at are the ones that are the most interesting, aren't mm. they? I mean, that doesn't mean you only, you know, only go where you're told not to tread. But sometimes there's a good reason not to tread in certain areas, sure. you know. And you, um, but, but yes, I mean, it's a very, very good time to be a writer. I, I always say this, but it really is a great time to be a writer. Firstly, because there's so many unexamined presumptions in the time. Mm. And secondly, that uh, not many people want to tread on them. You know, a lot of people really do feel very cautious about saying things even when they are as you say rightly majority views mm -hmm. and the third thing is that in historical terms it's a much safer time to be a writer doing that than it has been historically i mean we shouldn't forget that in in history when uh, when people tread on the issues you're not meant to tread on you know basically blaspheme the the uh, uh what do you call it? The, the beliefs, the dogmas of the time, mm -hmm. historically, you know, the people who did that, you know, got burnt at the stake or ripped apart by the Torquemada. And, and although there are virtual versions of that, mm -hmm. you know, comparative to almost any point in history, in fact, any point in history, um, we can have these taboos out and break them and, and, and have more honest conversations without any anything like the threat that used to exist in the past so um i i do understand people's reluctance to to you know particularly if they have a um a, you know what you might describe as a regular job you know mm -hmm. they, they might worry about whether or not they're going to be made unemployed i completely understand that but but for writers i mean i don't see the point of being a writer and and not trying to find out where the things are that are unexplored and try exploring them yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of strange to me. I mean, as someone who who grew up in the Middle East, as someone who grew up in in Saudi Arabia, um, which has a very different legal system and society and mm. structure and politics, etc., uh, I do find it interesting how in the freest, fairest, most equal under the law, so on and so forth, mm. societies, how people are becoming increasingly stifled in yeah. their own speech and just how, how terrified people are. I mean, both here mm -hmm. in the UK, when I was traveling in the US, I, I sort of kept having the same conversation with people, which I imagine you probably get even more than I do, which is, hey, I love what you're doing. I agree with what you're saying. I love that you say it. But I can't do. That's I, right. I can't. I can't even tread in these waters. You know, keep on. The, keep on tends to be the thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Keep doing what you're doing because I can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And where number one, where do why do you think that is? And number two, if people keep behaving in that way, where do you think it goes? I mean, I, th I think the fear is is in some ways a real one. As I say, I mean, it's, it's it's always hard to put your own life in historical perspective. So if you've got a chance of losing your job uh, if you say something, it doesn't much matter if people in the past used to get burnt at the stake. You know, your job is on the line. It's your mm -hmm household income that's that, that's at risk so i do understand why people have that uh that sort of fear that you you, you describe um i also think that uh, the current online culture that has washed across us in our own adult lifetimes um makes it harder than it has been in the past to retain a sense of um resilience against the mob mm. uh 
I think that, for instance, if you were the target of a letter writing campaign until quite recently, you know, they can brush over you quite easily. There's something particularly visceral and all encompassing about the online world, which means that when it comes for somebody, they really do feel, and I know quite a lot of people who suffered from it, they really do feel like everybody in the world hates them. Mm. And it's a horrifying, lonely making feeling. And and then they think they can't step out of the house. They're so embarrassed. And, and actually, of course, although the online world and the real world do overlap, they don't overlap completely. And what happens is that people go out into the real world again, and they realize, no, the real world is still there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, uh, it, they are legitimate fears. I think it's a particular issue, as you know, because uh, increasingly it's been that people don't know what the rules are. Mm. You see, if, if there were really clear rules, then it would be easier, easier to break them and easier to follow them. Sure. And I think the thing that's causing so much just agitation and disquiet at the moment is because so many people are just not sure what the rules are. Let me give you a very quick example. Um, when there was an episode in the UK a little while ago where a, um, a, a prominent member of the, the, the cabinet defense minister no less i mean it's a serious job uh was accused of 16 or 17 years earlier touching a uh female journalist's knee and he was subsequently made to resign over this and uh, uh, was wait, he, he, he touched a he supposedly touched a female journalist's knee yeah 17 years 17 ago. years earlier and he, he put his hand on the knee and she said um, i know uh, party involved she said uh take your hand off my knee or you know i'll thump you, you know, yeah, which yeah. is you know it's one way that women can uh, uh deal with that mm -hmm. and he took his hand off the knee and that was it and okay. uh, i mean it was a sort of story that went around for some years and then when he became defense minister uh it, it kind of bubbled up again and then the me too thing happened and then you know the the rules all seemed to be in flux and everyone was desperate to find guilty male perverts and mm. you know and, and and the bar lowered somewhere and somewhere the historic knee touch became a thing and he had to resign and wow. um i i say that because what's really interesting at moments like that is that the the, the that uh, um, for, right, for better or worse societal manners shift very swiftly at such moments and non-criminal behaviors suddenly become almost criminal mm. and people are asked questions in their workplace like have you can you assure me i think this is a question he was asked by the prime minister before resigning can you assure me that nothing like this has ever happened on any other occasion can you assure me you have never had made an inappropriate advance for woman and because you don't know what the new rules are exactly nobody can give that assurance and mm. and so you get a few people piping up who are always, by the way, the guilty ones. <laughs> it's outrageous that any man ever put his hand on a oh, yes, female course. knee, and it's, it's appalling, and these men must be strung up. Those people always total perfs. <laughs> Absolutely reliable rule. Yeah. Um, so watch out for them. But no, uh, but no, most normal men in that situation, just keep, they put their heads down, because basically everybody has done something yeah. uh, which, which is... Um, which is tricky, should we say? Once, once, and and the crucial thing is, once the manners and the the, the the norms start to shift, you just don't know what the rules are. 
Mm-hmm. And we've got that on issue after issue. I mean, as I write, man, you know, uh, relations between the sexes, obviously that's a very big, for good and ill, it's been shifting a lot in recent years. Mm. But the rules aren't very clear. In fact, they're not clear at all. Yeah. And it's the same on each of these, these identity issues. And I think that's what's making the era so particularly febrile. Mm-hmm. There was a second part of your question. You said, uh, uh, yeah, why... sure. I was wondering if people, so I'm often trying to encourage people. Part of the reason why I am fairly vocal, especially on Twitter, but also in my interviews, etc., is because I want to embolden, encourage, and inspire other people to just speak their mind and to, right. to speak openly and to not live in this sort of collective fear and cowardice because I have a lot of concerns that if people en masse continue to do that, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And yes. I get a lot of people like like you were saying who who tell me, yeah, but I'm, you know, it's easy for you to say you're self-employed. Mm. Like I could lose my job. I could lose this. And I'm thinking, well, you know, and a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I've got children. I need to look after my children. Yeah. But I think in five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if people continue with that attitude, then what sort of world and culture are those children even going to inherit? Are yes, they going to be yeah, allowed yeah. to say, are they going to be allowed to say anything? Are we going to have the return right. of, you know, blasphemy laws and expanding hate speech laws just in a reversed sense? Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. I mean, you, you see little glimpses of exactly what you ended up with just at the end of that point there. Uh, it, it happening in places like Scotland, where there's mm. an attempt to regulate speech that's just coming in. Uh, um, of course, by the way, the absurdity of all of that is, you know, uh, I mean, the Scottish government can't run the healthcare system in Scotland, it can't <laughs> run an education system. The idea it can police what everyone is thinking is just mm-hmm. preposterous, you know. Um, and, and it's even, the same with any the government. idea that it should, though. Even the yeah, idea that it should, yeah. Of course. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's been attempted in a number of countries. I mean, Canada was a prominent example in recent decades where these uh, human rights tribunals mm. that are sort of official and, and just beneath the level of normal courts uh, could, could haul people in front of them for, for what they'd said online or in an article if they were journalists. And, and these things went on and you think, you know, have you not got anything you could be doing uh, rather than this thing that you just shouldn't be doing? Mm. Um, all of our countries uh, have pretty developed pretty good uh, hate speech laws, or at least mm. incitement laws. And uh, whenever somebody suggests that the solution is to you know, have more laws uh, uh, to make sure we make people nicer, you know, you just think there is a fool. There mm. is a fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as as I've always as I've always said, um, you know, a society in which even your deepest feelings can be trodden upon is the only society worth living in. Yeah. Uh, you know what it's like to live in a society where um, certain things, if you tread on them, are just totally disallowed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's it's not a pleasant society to live in. Yeah, um, and I, I think what's really interesting with that, given given my own sort of background and life experience, having having grown up in you know, probably the most Islamic country in the mm. world is the the how it's um it, it's essentially an inversion in terms of the laws. So there are things mm. there are things that I could say in Saudi Arabia openly and publicly that I'd get in trouble for saying in the UK. Right. Right. Go <laughs> on, give us an example. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> 
Um, oh boy. I, let, okay, let's say anything that is not um, even not necessarily anti, but not super pro um, LGBT. Shall oh, we sure. Say. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, that, that would be that would be an obvious example. Hmm. Um, but then there are things that in the UK where you know you you can you can say that here in the UK. Um, to to be honest, actually, there's also an overlap because there are things that you can't really say. In, yes. in in either of those because of fear of the same repercussions. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's interesting because I've had this conversation with people just around free speech and, you know, why mm-hmm. the concept of free speech is important, etc. And people will always come with the argument about, well, you shouldn't be able to offend people and, right. you know, we have to care about people's feelings and things yeah, like this. That's and what I, people say when they haven't thought about it at all. Exactly. And they'll often bring in, they'll often even talk about minorities, right? They'll talk about yeah. what they call protected groups and things yeah, like yeah. that. And I, I often give them this counterpoint because I tell them that what they consider, what they are considering, um, you know, some type of advocacy, for example, say you've got someone who, who you know, strongly believes in LGBT advocacy and, uh, you know, gay rights or trans rights or whatever it is. And that's the thing that they're very passionate about. I'm mm-hmm. like, do you understand there are countries in the world mm-hmm. where that is considered hate speech? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so who so who which which government, which power or whatever are you so confident in? that they're always going to get it right because what right. you're saying here is free speech is hate speech there. What they're saying is hate speech there is free speech here. And, you know, there's no well, way to set it. The, I mean, I'm not a relativist about this. I mean, I think there are things that are correct and, and true and things that are not. Mm. But, I mean, the, the point of free speech, of course, and, and one of the things that I think has got lost for a lot of people in recent years is that the, the free speech isn't, isn't something you just talk about. It's meant to be mm. something you do. Um, uh, you and you do it not just for the fun of it, but because if you have free speech, then there's a there's a much greater chance you're going to get to a truth. Yes, and that's that's the component in it. I often notice is missing in our age when talking about this. It sounds very abstract to a lot of people. You know, free speech. Well, you know, why would you have free speech if people can be hurt? Well, mm. because it's because the truth is more important than people's feelings. Yes. And it's much more important, for instance, I mean, Saudi Arabia is at a distinct disadvantage in certain ways because it has blasphemy laws relating to the Sharia and the life of the Prophet Muhammad, as they call him, and much more. And um, if, 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 because they um, basically close off whole areas of discussion, mm-hmm. it means that, first of all, there are, peop- there are people who are wasting their lives in fruitless thought and study and it means that there are certain things that just won't work. I mean, we've, we have examples in, in, the, in, the, in the West as well at the moment. Uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrow has given an example in their recent book, Cynical Theories, of the way in which um, sort of critical race theory and others are now even in engineering. Mm-hmm. Now, you would have said before, the problem of introducing bad ideas to engineering is that it's really important that the bridges hold up. Yes. You know, it, it, and, uh, but again, the point there is, there might be things in engineering, like gravity, mm-hmm. that are disappointing to some people. <laughs> but it's best not to, to, to cordon things off just because some people might be disappointed by them or upset by them. Mm-hmm. If what you get at the end of it is the thing you need. Now, in engineering, obviously, the obvious example of the bridge is, is, a, is a physical structure that you need to drive across. 
But there are lots of other less concrete ideas in society that are important as well, that you can only get to, and truths you can only get to if you have the discussion out at its most free. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, as I say, why I, I worry that, that whenever we, we cordon bits off and say, no, it'd be better if you didn't go there. Um, actually, not only are those bits the interesting bits, but they're the ones that are most fruitful in lots of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I say this about LGBT, I say it about race, I say it about relations between the sexes, trans and more in the Madness of Crowds, is, is actually there are some left behind issues. Like there is, this, there is this unaddressed issue within feminism of exactly what motherhood should be in the mm-hmm. feminist worldview. And it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And so it was parked. There are, there are things like that in the LGBT uh, discussions. Um, really tricky things which we park because we fear it will offend people and we're not sure if we, if we can trust ourselves with the knowledge. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that, that I think is one of the things that unites all of this is we're not sure if we can trust people with the knowledge they, might, they, may, they may acquire. Mm. And I have a little bit more trust, not much, but a little bit more trust in people <laughs> than that and think we can actually cope with a bit more. And certainly it's, it's more preferable than you know, engaging in childish lies mm-hmm. or being childishly policed by people who haven't really thought about the consequences of the things they're proposing. Yeah. It seems like there's a very strong, natural human urge to, number one, of course, protect our own ideas and mm-hmm. beliefs, etc. even if that means yeah. stifling other ones, whether that's trying to yeah. deplatform people or cancel people or burn books or implement laws, policies, etc. that make it, you know, just impermissible, not permissible to talk about certain things. Or if mm-hmm. you're going to talk about them, you have to have the so-called right opinion. <laughs> um, and then also, it seems that there's, um, th- there just seems to be a human desire to to control other people. I mean, we're, sure. we're seeing this a lot. Again, another yeah. funny, another very, very funny pa- parallel for me is uh, the, the mask wearing thing, right? Yeah. So, yes. so when I grew up in Saudi Arabia, if you, if you went into the, into the major cities, I don't, think they, I don't think they still have this, but if you went into the major cities, they used to have um, people called mutawa, which were the religious right. police, right? The religious cool. police who go around enforcing dress standards, making sure uh, women have their head covered, making sure, you know, if, if they see me with my chain like that, you know, making sure, mm-hmm. making sure I tuck it in. I'm not showing any jewelry. I'm, you know, mm. dressed appropriately. And I, I just find this remarkable parallel between these people who are now going out, bo- both online and offline, and who are just becoming hysterical and are acting like like the you know trying to enforce this standard and it's also funny because it's also something that you put that covers that covers up your face right so yes. it's, it's I, very I mean, strange yeah i think in general i, I think the mask one is is is, is tricky um mm. because there are, there's genuine division over the utility of them yes um i think that you're right that there is a there is a very deep-seated urge to to control other people and i mean it was it's it's one of the remarkable things about the internet is that all of these companies, when they started off like Twitter, um, they probably didn't realize how successful it was going to be, but their business model is that the general public will correct each other's behavior for yes. free online in their spare time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like every time you say that person's an idiot, <laughs> you are working for Twitter for free and you don't know that, but that's what you're doing, you know? And, and, 
the reason the business model works so well is because this is such a an instinct this desire to correct you know mm. you find somebody who's got no followers but they've said something stupid and everyone piles on they want to correct they want to be seen to be correct yes and i mean i think that um, in a way a more interesting aspect of that is this one of when a group uh, what i call a, a um, boot on the other footism a shoe on the other footism mm. Uh, what happens when you've got the upper hand for a moment? How do you behave? You see, and I've always said this with all rights struggles. The interesting thing about all rights struggles is, is once they're accomplished, or pretty much accomplished, set in law, should we say, um, how do the people who won behave? Mm -hmm. And I say this, I say this as, as a gay man, but I'm, I, I've been very uncomfortable for a while about the way in which elements, not all, but elements of the LGBT um, should we say organized sort of you know residual press residual campaigning groups i'd be very uncomfortable for a long time about the way in which they behave towards people who disagree with uh, with them yes and i yes. and i don't like it and i i, I start manners of crowds with a scene of this as a christian group who made a film about uh, basically something it's sort of like voluntary conversion mm -hmm. therapy. and then i went and i I watched the film and spoke with the attendees and things. And I just felt very uncomfortable about the fact that these people have been chased from a couple of cinemas. They couldn't mm. show their film in cinemas. They were gathering in a, pri in a public place. We've been hired for a private event. And, you know, they ended up having to sort of scurry to a final private venue. And I just thought gays didn't like this when it happened to us. Yes. And, and it's, not, it's, it's not very decent, actually, to once you've won do the same thing back to other people. And I noticed, I mean, I noticed this in the race discussion at the moment. Oh gosh, yes. There are some people, they're not all black, but I mean, some are black, yeah. who are very happy to basically say, okay, I'm now the one mm -hmm. who has the power and wow, am I going to use it? You know, oh, I'm going to excommunicate you if you, you know, and, and, and the problem is, is that we can't operate like this because you can't allow people to wield tools this powerful. Mm -hmm if they can, and some of them will, wield them dishonestly and for short-term gain. I mean, yeah. if, you wanted to, if you wanted to climb up in an organization at the moment, uh, you know, it would be tempting if you were one of the protected minority groups in Britain or America, say, it would be tempting yeah. to say, maybe I'll weaponize one of these traits at some point. It might get me somewhere. I mean, mm -hmm. we have to rely on everyone who's of a protected group or minority group to always be virtuous. Yes. And my yeah. observation is that we're not. No, I mean, one thing, one thing I've noticed, I think I said this on Twitter last year and it went viral, which is that, you know, it's very clear that a lot of people are not looking for equality, but yes. revenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yep, a lot yeah, of people absolutely. are looking for revenge. And there's a lot, of, you know, this is a, you know, maybe this is a controversial thought, but I've, I've often thought that in history, where groups have done evil things to other mm. groups and where people have been legitimately oppressed, subjugated, vic victimized, enslaved, etc. When that happens, people always, you know, people look at the perpetrators as if there were something sort of uniquely evil or uniquely wrong yes, with them. But yes. my controversial thought is that in the vast majority of those cases, had the power been just inverted right had it been right. the had it been the other group that had the power to oppress the other one it's very likely that they would have behaved very in a very similar way just because power seems mm -hmm. to 
corrupt people in this way, right? It's not that necessarily it, it, there was something specifically evil about the, you know, about yes. this, this group or that group or whatever, but they just happened to be the ones at that moment who had the power because you're seeing when it gets inverted, yeah. you know, we're seeing how people, how people behave. And there are certainly people out in the streets right now, if you're looking at what's going on in America, et cetera. Sure. I mean, can you imagine if some of those people legitimately had a huge amount of institutional power sure, like sure. god forbid yeah i mean i i would add that human instincts like the one you just described um aren't practiced by everyone all the time mm -hmm. and why is that it's because they have some override button so um some people know that if they had power they might act tyrannically mm -hmm. so why don't they and it's because there is some override mechanism that they possess, which tells them not to. Now, the most obvious override mechanism that has existed is religion. Mm -hmm. By the way, I mean, it's not a clear cut thing, of course, because sure, sure. people can also use religion to justify doing the terrible thing. Of course. Um, but if you know that what you're, if you know that what you're doing, you could do, but you won't because it would be wrong. Mm -hmm then you are able to act as a moral person in the universe. Mm -hmm. If you, if you don't, if you believe that for instance, you just need to win, well, you can do anything. Yes. And a lot of people genuinely do just want to win or accrue power to themselves or accrue benefits to themselves, riches or much more. And, and I think we have to be united in being very, very stern in calling these people out mm. wherever they come from. But, you know, um, it was a, there was a very interesting um, point which uh, uh, I cited a little while ago in an event with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson that um, a writer called David Belinsky, who's from the U.S., based in Paris, made uh, some time ago in a book about uh, about God. He made a very interesting point, which is uh, quite a stimulating one to reflect on. Which is that he says that the that the totalitarians of the 20th century, the, 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 you know, the, the Nazi, the SS officer, the SS troops, the, you know, the people who did what Mao wanted them to do, the Khmer Rouge, all of the, all of the people, the Bolsheviks, everyone who made the 20th century such a charnel house um, had one thing in common, which is that when they acted the way they did, none of them thought God was watching. Mm -hmm. mm. And I've always found that a very powerful idea. Um, it doesn't prove the existence of God. It doesn't disprove mm -hmm. it. But it's true that the way you operate when you don't believe anyone can see you yes. reveals an awful lot about you. And I think there are a lot of people at the moment willing to act in a way that is morally reprehensible because they believe that no one is watching them. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a really interesting observation. I mean, as someone who's been following your work for quite a while, I, I get the feeling that you you yourself has have somewhat shifted on your sort of views on religion. Maybe even even if it's from a somewhat utilitarian perspective. I mean, there are a lot of things that are happening now where you know, for many years, I've if I bring religion into certain conversations, societal, cultural things that are going on, like a lot of times people would always kind of 
shoo-shoo it or think that I'm, 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 I'm kind of talking crazy or I'm trying to shoehorn God into Particularly things. Particularly in, in Britain. Particularly yeah, in Britain, yeah. where somebody once said to me, talking about religion is like somebody's just taking their clothes off. <laughs> un- unasked. Yeah, and, and again, like, like you know, I, I'm a Christian myself, but when I, make, when I make these points, I'm not even arguing specifically in favor of my religion or making an argument for the existence of God. I'm saying mm. in the absence of that or in the decline of that, what is it that comes in to fill that void of meaning mm-hmm. and purpose and good mm. and evil and all those sort of things in a lot of people? And I, I think it's I think it's very clear in 2020 in the in the modern Western world, I think it's very clear that there are a lot of religious undertones in multiple ways yes. to a lot of things that are going on, whether this is this sort of woke intersectional social justice thing you essentially it's it's become yeah. a secular religion you're seeing what's sure. going on with some of the blm protests and mm-hmm. the chanting and the you know trying to get people to to you know it's almost this convert or die sort of mentality mm. it, it's sort of yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. the 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 worst aspects of a, a quite radical relig- fundamentalist religion without the the positive aspects that religion brings in terms of well, salvation and forgiveness and you know yes. love, love your enemies that sort of thing it's yes um, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely you're, you're right except it does have some of the positive to give it credit for a second it mm. does have some of the positives of, of religion for instance it gives the sense of belonging mm-hmm. uh, it gives a sense of purpose and it gives ideas like um oh the overarching uh, overarching um nature of justice for instance mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always very worried about this in, in the modern uh, liberal era, the, the, the presumption that things gravitate towards, for instance, freedom and liberalism as if by gravity, yeah, you know. And if, you, if you're not a deist, uh, it's quite hard to see why that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, yes, but this points to one of the... I said it. I think I said in Strange Death of Europe, but one of the big, big problems of our era and the place we we are in, mm-hmm. which is there is this gap of meaning, unaddressed, unspoken about, very often, mm-hmm. underneath the whole order, and uh, I think that an awful lot of the uh, the unhappiness and um, illness, I'd even say, including mental illness of our time. Uh, does have an element which is to do with this, which is mm-hmm. this, this, you know, we, we, one of the deep things that we are as people is what we can address in our era least. I mean, as I say, religion addresses it. You can get versions of it through membership of other organizations and entities and the sense that you're doing just things, but mm-hmm. you still have the big why question underneath. And I think that an era that, doesn't take count of that is vulnerable. Yes. Almost, almost vulnerable to any idea that says I've got the why, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I've got lots of atheistic friends and I, I think that a lot of atheists can be overly idealistic. I, I feel like they think that if yes. th- this is more the anti-theist types, the sure. ones who seem to think that, okay, if we can, if we can sort of root religion out of society, then right. you know they they have this utopian right. idea that everyone's going to be like Sam Harris, 
right? Yes. Whereas a, I a, believe... A point, a, yes, a, a point I've made to Sam's face. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. I've made okay. that point to Sam's face. You know, if it was Sam Harris all the way down, I'd be quite happy. I yeah, just don't I, think it is. I don't no, think it is. Exactly. I, I think the actual reality looks a lot more like, you know, some of these people we're seeing out on the streets marching and yes. fighting and deciding that race and gender and yes. sexuality and um, all of these things and even political ideology are the most important things in the world. I mean, yesterday I put up a poll because I was seeing all these crazy tweets going around about people threatening to cancel their family members or divorce. Oh, that's, divorce the worst. that's the worst. That's a cult. That's not even religion. That <laughs> that's just a cult. Yeah, yeah. That's I, a I was Jim Jones-like cult. Yeah, it's disturbing. But I mean, I put up a poll and 43% of 20,000 people responded and 43% of people said that they've lost at least one friend or family member purely because of political yeah. disagreement. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's the saddest thing that, isn't it, Zuby? Yeah. I mean, just the saddest thing because when you, you know, when you look at your life, you know, the ideas matter enormously, but the mm -hmm. people around you, the people you love, people who love you, is a thing that matters even more. And when, when people are willing to burn down the relationships around them mm. for doctrinal reasons, you know, you just, it's, it's very sad and it's also scary because it shows you know, what people are willing to sacrifice in the pursuit of what they regard as the, the, the virtuous. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that that, it, it, by the way, another possible reason why we've got here is um, a failure um, or an over-reliance, should we say, on the Enlightenment. This is, a, this is a dispute I think we're going to go through in the coming years as we try to work out how to shore up free societies. Um, I think there is a fundamental disagreement that exists between small C conservatives uh, who broadly speaking rely on the things that you've had already mm -hmm. and uh, believers in the enlightenment as the main basis, which is a very strong argument, but has clear visible limits because, and we've seen them quite a lot of times over the centuries, but you know, it, it, it turns out that people who believe in reason can be very unreasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that, not everyone is as rational as the rationalists would like to think. No, no. And, you know, we, we, the Enlightenment is, is a, it was an extraordinary thing, is an extraordinary thing. But I, I do think that there is, a, there is a problem, which we're going to have to confront at some point, of what happens if you base your society solely mm -hmm. on that principle. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, something... Yeah, it's you, something that's you, gone through in French history for you know a couple of centuries now. Yeah, well, it's happened a lot. I mean, if you go back and you look at um, you know, not that long ago, things like things like eugenic, you know, eugenics. Yes, right? absolutely. You know, those, those kind of absolutely. things where it's just pure from a purely scientific, rational perspective. Mm. You know, one could make a sound yeah. argument for a lot of those things. Oh yeah, and by but, the way, and, and yeah. people should remember that was uh, the, these things. I mean, it's not. I don't want to make it just a left-right point, but. Mm -hmm. I mean, eugenics and all of that, well, that was very big on the left yes, in the early progressive. 20th century. You know, yeah. it was a progressive idea. Birth control as a means of getting certain people out of the population pool. Mm -hmm. uh, this was, you know, this was people like uh, George Bernard Shaw, the Webbs, the mm -hmm. uh, new, new statesman sort of crowd. It was those people in the early 20th century who were, who were most prominently attracted to things we now think of as being simply Nazi. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the, to be honest, I mean, a lot of those people still 
still are. I mean, even even in this moment, if you look at the people who support that kind of stuff, I mean, some of the reasoning will be used differently because eugenics itself sounds like such a dirty word. Yeah. But, um, you know, let's, man, let's, okay, let's, let's jump on a bomb here, right? Why, why are there no children with Down syndrome in Iceland? I know, I know, I know. Right? So yeah, that's, yeah. that's truly, a, that's, yeah. no one likes to use the term eugenics. They'd rather use other buzzwords, but yes. that's what it is. Yes, we, um, it's, it's one of the most uncomfortable ones, this. Uh, yeah. You have done other ones. There was, there was, a, there was a female clergyman, a clergywoman in the UK a little while ago who, who was born with a cleft palate and mentioned the fact that, you know, the, that the way it was going, people with cleft palates weren't uh, being born anymore. It yeah. was being discovered at an early stage in pregnancy and uh, parents could make the decision to abort. And, and uh, it's... It, 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 it's the, the the telling and important thing about that is the reminder that you know that people don't do bad things because they seek to be bad mm -hmm. they very often get to the worst points because all the way along they thought they were doing things for the good yeah there's a very there's a very um uh, stimulating novel by martin amos time's arrow it's a sort of holocaust novel that a lot of people at the time didn't like when it came out in i think the early 90s um, but it does the Holocaust backwards and, and okay. everything happens backwards in the time scheme. Um, but there are many interesting things that happen because of that interesting perspective on certain things that you hadn't seen before. But one of the most interesting is, and it's really gruesome, but bear with me for a second. Mm -hmm. The people in the people in, in the, um, in the gas, the people in, in the ovens at Auschwitz uh, pull out bodies as it were, rather than putting them in because mm -hmm. everything's going back. Okay, pull okay. out bodies towards the very end of what is, of course, the beginning of the Holocaust. Some of them start to get worried because the, the the people they're pulling out of the of the ovens seem to be deformed, and they wonder whether it's worth doing it. Mm. And it's it's it, it's what I found so stimulating about this is it's a reminder of the fact that this instinct of maybe this is good this stage yeah does exist and did exist then as it exists in a less lethal way obviously now mm -hmm. a reminder that you know we don't do bad because we seek to be bad yes you know we do evil things often not always often in in, in pursuit of good mm. uh, it's and it's you know and i wish that more particularly young people were able to realize that because it would make our discussions across political and other lines much easier yeah. if we realized that it, it isn't just a sort of, you know, team of light and a team of dark, you yes, know, and, yes. that, and that, that it's all of us all the time mm -hmm. milling around in our own brains, and yeah. our own souls. And, and that's, that's what you just touched on there. I mean, that's, that's the scariest part of it, right? Because mm. if you're doing something that you know is wrong or you know is cruel or you yeah. know is evil then unless you're a true psychopath, then mm. there, there's a limit to that, right? There's, there's a cap on it. But yes. if, you, if you are genuinely convinced that what you are doing is good and righteous and ethical, then there's no limit to it, right? There's, that's, that's, right. Why, that's, why, um, that's why ideological or religious terrorism is, is so scary, right? That person who's strapping, yes. strapping on that suicide vest, they legitimately oh, yeah. are convinced that they are serving yes. God's will and that this is their way yes. into heaven. And by going and killing all these people, you're doing something good. Absolutely. So, so they and, do it and, with passion. Yeah. And, and in religious and in non-religious realms. I mean, I mean, after the revolution in 1789, um, as the terror gets underway in France, 
I mean, people did think that they needed more blood and more heads mm. and that the more, if they just guillotined a certain number more people, then they'd get to the promised place. Yeah. And of course they didn't, they just had piles more bodies and, and destroyed lives. And, mm -hmm. and it, it, it's the same every time, same in Stalinist Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, always the idea that the next, the next round of executions will sort the problem out. But it never is like that. You never mm -hmm. get to that place. And that's why, that's why the, the small c conservative um, suspicion of utopian thinking is so sensible mm -hmm. because it says, you know, regrettably, we are all prone to utopian thinking and, and utopian wishing, but it is a tendency we ought to try to resist because, uh, you know, wonderful as it would be, it doesn't happen. It can't mm. happen because of the nature, the crooked timber of humanity. Yeah. Do you think part of the problem, I mean, I, I know you mentioned this, um, I know you mentioned this in the madness of crowds, but I, I think one of the big problems is that things have improved very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And actually, for the first time in history, in the modern Western world, we've the, the position we're in right now as a society and as a culture is is brand new, right? Mm -hmm. This is the first mm -hmm. time where you truly actually have equal rights under the law, right? So right. The position of liberals or the role of the left all through the past centuries and decades was always quite obvious, right? You could always point at a group and say, okay, these people are being yeah. discriminated against under the law. Like this, this policy is racist, this policy is sexist, so on and so forth. But for the first time and for the, in the first place all throughout human history, if you're in the UK, if you're in the USA, et cetera, mm. I, don't believe you could, you, you, I don't believe you could show me a law I don't think you could show me any law where you could say, mm. okay, this is genuinely discriminatory right. against this group of people. And I, I don't think people have sort of looked up and realized that. I think a lot of the problems that we have, number one, stem from us just being too comfortable, but also mm. stem from the fact that perhaps the fights that we should be fighting are not clear and obvious in the way that yes. they, they sort of used to be. I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah. what the do we need any more civil rights fights? Maybe we right. don't, but people want to fight them. Yeah, I, I, it's a very important point. I am, um, you, you know, you're very blessed if you live in an era where people care about microaggressions against yeah. you. <laughs> very, very Most of human history is very, very aggressive and yes. it didn't care. Macroaggressions. Macroaggressions. Macroaggressions on a huge scale. Yeah. Uh, and nobody had time for your microaggressions. And it's, it's, um, it's a tendency of the age to, um, to believe that if you, you, you fiddle with these remaining things, uh, you do so with the force you previously applied to macroaggressions, you will solve the whole thing. Mm. Uh, I, I think actually we're being distracted, among other things at the moment, from uh, things that are s not solvable, but worth very, very worth addressing. Mm -hmm. And we're being derailed by people who are dishonest actors. And let me give you an ex example. Sure. Um, I think there are significant swathes of America. I might say, I'm not a party political person, but I might say notably in certain democratic areas, areas run by the Democrat party, where um, incarceration rates for black Americans 
illiteracy rates of black Americans, uh, educational attainment for black Americans, employment rates for black Americans is dire. Mm -hmm. And in areas, I mean, we see this with recent writing, in areas very often where there is a black mayor, a black police chief, a black uh, uh, congressman, um, and so on. And then everyone starts talking about uh, how everyone has got racism embedded in the system and how if we, you know, if we, uh, if we address 1619 and the founding fathers and pull this down and that down, we'll solve it. And you think, yeah. of course you, you, you want to think that because yeah. the job you should be doing is hard. Mm. The job you should be doing is hard. And that is, for instance, to do all of the things that would be needed to make sure that this kind of social breakdown didn't occur. Yes couldn't occur that's hard it's it's the most worthwhile thing to do if you're in charge of that Mm -hmm. but it's much easier to just go around talking about how you know everyone should take the knee at nba games or something like that and uh, that's what we're being distracted on you know we're being distracted honestly i as i I rarely ever use the phrase as a black man Mm. but as a black man Mm. this is one thing that jars me so much it jars me so much because, and part of the reason, you know, there's lots of reasons why I, I lean more conservative than, than I lean more, more to the left. But one of the big ones is this, uh, you know, on, on the left side of the spectrum and with a lot of these liberals and progressives, just the levels of virtue signaling and yeah. condescension and wanting to talk the talk mm. and say what seems to be popular and what you're supposed to say without actually addressing or even wanting to address or even acknowledge the genuine issue, mm, right? Mm, so mm. even if you take something like the the Black Lives Matter movement, right? I would love it if there was a Black Lives Matter movment that really was what it said on the tin. Right. Right. I think, right. I think the yeah. USA in particular actually needs a movement called, I actually think it needs a Black Lives mm, Matter movement, mm. but I don't think it needs a Black Lives Matter movement that is solely focused on the rare and unfortunate incidents where a black person happens to be killed by a white police officer right, under right. Dubi- in dubious circumstances, which yeah, happens yeah. which happens a couple times a year. A couple yeah. times a year is too much, right? Yeah, in the, in yeah. Last year, there were over 7,000 7, black people killed, over 7,000 murders. Can this be spoken about? Mm, Even mm. here in the UK, what about things like things like knife crime? As soon as I know, you want to, I know. As soon as exactly. you want to have the real conversation, if you're white, they're going to want to call you racist. If you're if you're black, they're going to try to say that you're you're an Uncle Tom or you're a coon or what. And, and like, yeah. I actually genuinely care about these issues. Yeah. So for people who are be, just being dishonest and who <laughs> want to say just scream institutional racism and systemic mm. racism and structural racism and white supremacy, I'm like, this is not. This is not that's helpful. Right. In, in fact, that's right. to, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, you're part of the problem because yeah, you're preventing yeah, yeah. the problem from being discussed. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier, that you're preventing this conversation from happening honestly, yeah. and therefore you're preventing any real solutions. Look, if, if we could mm. somehow eliminate all racism from everybody's heart, all racism, right? Mm. Would these problems still exist? And the answer mm. is overwhelmingly yes. So that suggests very strongly to me that the primary issue we're dealing here is not some sort of specter of white supremacy or structural racism or institutional racism, et cetera. It's it's absent fathers. It's lack of education attainment. Perhaps it's lack of investments in in certain areas. There there are a whole bunch of things that we can talk about, Mm. but 
instead it's like the answer is always racism and then yes. people want to backtrack and and retrofit the answer racism to, and apply it to, to everything even where it totally doesn't make sense and it's very very frustrating yeah. to me that that, that 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 is such a good point and it, 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 it the, the example you give nice knife crime in the uk uh, uh us you know black lives matter but it's, is exactly the one because we have got in the UK this sort of mini version of this, which which goes around where every time uh, there's you know a, a spike in knife crime in London, for instance, you know we have this sort of crock discussion. Either it gets onto stop and search policies of the police, mm-hmm. which is which is like highly specific and not really the point. You know, it's it's a bit of a point, but it's not the point. Yeah. And you either get onto that or you get these weird generalizations about how we all need to increase hope or something. And mm-hmm. um, I noticed, I used to notice this with a terrorism discussion over the last couple of decades. You know, you'd have like very, you'd have a terrible thing would happen, a, a terrorist attack, an outrage or something. And the, 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 the conversation would deliberately go, it seemed to me deliberately go, both very macro and very micro at the same time. So mm. you would have people say, this is why we've got to ensure that internet search engines don't prioritize this on an algorithm. And then they'd say, and also we've got to, you know, make sure that people feel that they're not hopeless or something like that, or mm-hmm. we've all got our part to play. And, and I just always thought, no, that neither of those is the point. They're, they're almost perfectly framed to avoid the point, yes, yes. you know, one on one on one side too broad for use for utility, mm-hmm. and on the other hand too specific to remotely deal with the problem. And the example, the example of this uh, with BLM with knife crime is, is is a good example of it. You know, if you agree to the core of a problem, for instance, for uh, uh, Black America, is educational attainments, fatherless families, and much more, mm-hmm. then that requires a hell of a lot of work, but it's yes. work that would be the most worth doing work you could do. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you get these things instead on either side, things that are too broad to be useful and too specific to do anything is exactly what's replayed, exactly what's replayed in the British context here. Yeah. And I do, think, I do think this is something we are being effectively manipulated into doing, that the conversation deliberately goes so wide or so shallow precisely in order that we don't address this and why don't we you know we could we could get like political unanimity Mm -hmm. if we actually if enough people said no i call bullshit on this yeah this is not the problem yeah yes as far i don't i don't use the term um institutional i don't use the terms institutional and structural racism much these days but i think that's the real systemic racism the fact that people do not want to actually Right. People, people want to say the term. People want to skirt around and talk about this and talk about that. But no one actually like if people really cared, as you said, if you look at America, these lots of these cities have been run by the same people for the past Mm. four decades. Right. If you genuinely right, not just throwing up a hashtag or, you know, Mm. holding up a sign, if you genuinely, genuinely believe that black lives matter and you genuinely care about minorities and you genuinely care about poor people and you genuinely care about the downtrodden etc why don't you actually do something mm. real something tangible that will help people right a, a companies yeah, yeah. these companies virtue signaling on on social media putting up a black putting up a black square 
um, going around, forcing people to raise their fist in the air, forcing people. What does this do? Who does this? Yeah. It does nothing. It's, it's, yeah. it's virtue signaling to the maximum. It makes you, it makes you look like you're some sort of uh, great person or anti-racist mm. or whatever. But people will go do this and then they, then they go back home and they, they just get on with their normal business. And, yeah. and again, even with the rioting and the looting and all the stuff that was going on, I'm, I'm like, how many people are getting harmed by this, right? And then even right. these celebrities... Why don't they put their money? They were putting their money to bail out people who destroyed the, the way, buildings. I'm they've just... gone. They, they haven't. You, those celebrities have gone quiet of late. Have you noticed of course, that? Of course. I mean, maybe they've run out of cash. <laughs> I sort of think not. But you know, it, that, that's an ex a very yeah. good example of just the crassness that that, that that some people are willing to engage in. You know, uh, uh, that ends up uh, encouraging people to think that if they break the law, then they've you know like. Mm some stupid celebrities got their back. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 do, I do worry about, about this, this, this thing of us all being, as I say, effectively distracted. Yeah. Um, but, but we've also got to try to work out ways to, to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best way is, is to start with is for people to be pointing this out and yeah. for prominent figures to be pointing this out. You know, the heart sings whenever somebody publicly says something that everyone else knows to be true, but didn't dare say, you know, yeah. the heart just sings. <laughs> and uh, because you know, it means that you're less likely to continue to be living in error as a society. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why when people speak up, they can, you know, this is why one should encourage people to speak up. We shouldn't encourage people to be, you know, callow and, 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 and frightened. We should yes. encourage people to, to speak up. And the main reason is, is that it's worth doing and mm -hmm. you, you'll get to the truth. Um, but but maybe, maybe it's important to stress that as, a, as a side benefit these days, you know, it, there is a future for doing it. In fact, you could get great acclaim and, and you know, and, and even become moderately wealthy by, uh, by saying what <laughs> nobody else wants to say. I mean, I think it's worth, it's worth stressing that to people, you know, mm. um, uh, uh, it's, it's risky, but, but could be rewarding for instance. Mm. Um, and I really do think that I think that there are, you can spot it at certain times. There are times you think, gosh, this would be a really good time for somebody, you know, to do this from this group yes. because it's just crying out for that, you know, and, 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 as I say, I, I sort of think in a way I, I'm so fed up with the, I can't speak brigade. Yeah. I just want to encourage people to speak. And I do think that this, the, the fact that you could do really well mm -hmm. is worth bearing in mind, you know, not just that yeah. you like, might survive, <laughs> but that you could do really well. Yeah. You could be a leader. You could be a, a you could become a, prominence you could be a statesperson you could you could you know you could really change things you can become you, the you can become the british females deadlift record holder <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful motivational <laughs> point that is <laughs> do you know the funniest thing about that douglas was um Go on. after i did it of course i i had loads of media appearances and interviews and everywhere, even at the even at the BBC, even ever, off camera, everyone was like, "Thank you, thank you wow. so much." <laughs> right off of camera, course. whether it's the assistants who are tweaking the knobs or it's the women working, yeah. in the, they were just like, 
that was amazing. Someone, right. someone had to do it. And thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. You see that opportunity and you think it's got to be done. <laughs> got to be done. Um, this, this is very important though. This is very important, particularly for young people starting out because I'm, I'm worried that this, you know, I'm worried that things like cancel culture talk becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. that we all just submarine a bit. Um, I'm, I'm keen to turn that round, and I think it can be turned around. Mm -hmm. And I'm also keen that we, we give a counter-narrative to the story that is being told to particularly young people now, which I think is not true and not fair. I, I don't know about you, but my sense is that a lot of my younger readers and listeners in particular have been told a version of their society and the society we live in that it just isn't fair or true. Mm -hmm. And it worries them because it doesn't accord with their own experience. But, you know, when you're in your teens, you don't know what, what life was like in the 1990s. I mean, it's, just like, it's, it's history. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, that as a result, some dishonest people have made a lot of headway in, in Britain, in America in particular, of portraying the societies in a very unfair light. And particularly people who are from minority communities, minority groups, might grow up now thinking that what they're being told is true. Yes. You know, when the president of Princeton says Princeton is still systemically racist. Um, it's not exactly encouraging, is it? No. I mean, if you didn't know that this is just some <laughs> stupid old, you know, in yeah. his case, white guy who's wanting to beg for, you know, brownie points, as it were, probably not the right phrase, but you know, I mean, they're like trying to, he's trying to curry favor with people and saying, you know, uh, admire my admire my humility or my willingness to admit guilt or something like that yes and if, if you're in your early teenage years you don't know that that's the case and probably the princeton president is a smart man you'd think and and you can't understand the dynamics and and when he says princeton is still a racist institution I can't help thinking you might just think I'm not going to Princeton. It sounds horrible. Yeah, exactly. And, and we've got to find a way to turn this around and to mm. say to people, you have not been told the truth. Our societies have flaws for sure. And there will be some people in them who have unpleasant views and unpleasant mm. ideas, but, but, but broadly speaking, nevertheless, it's great. Yes. And you can achieve whatever you can. You mm. can achieve whatever you have the competency to achieve. And, and we need, we need quite a wide ranging and grand effort to plant a more reasonable view of our societies in the heads of young people who have been misled mm -hmm. and wickedly misled. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Absolutely. One, one of my least favorite things about all this isn't just the, it's not just the lies and the um, avoidance of the truth. It's also the fact that it's just simply such a pessimistic and yeah, negative and unhelpful view. I, mm. what, what positives come from critical race theory? What, what are the right. positives of, or what, really, what are, what are the positives yeah, yeah. of me going around, number one, believing that me being, me being black is the most important thing and you <laughs> being white is the most important thing. And therefore I'm a member of this group, which is oppressed. Mm. And you're now, you're now 
um, an oppressor and your, your, your male as well. So that, that's also a fact. Mm. I just don't see how instilling this worldview in people or having this worldview mm. brings you any kind of happiness or, or yeah. peace or joy or enables you to just get, just get on with people and just see people as people and have friends from different groups and ethnicities. And that's for right. people who are always screaming about diversity, inclusion, and tolerance, you know, they're, they're extremely, seem extremely uh, homogenized, um, exclusive, yeah. and yeah. intolerant. And it's, uh, yeah. it's quite amazing. <laughs> I, would, I would add, by the way, in my own sphere of particular knowledge, they still haven't produced any readable books. Oh, geez, <laughs> I mean, no. you know, it is very striking. I mean, the, the impression is given that if you, uh, if you double down on all this stuff, focus on it endlessly, you know, we are all freer in some way. I think we're being um, restricted. Yeah in massive ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I give this example in the madness of crowds uh, that, you know, there are writers in this generation who undoubtedly write worse than writers of a previous generation, despite being in a freer situation. Mm. Because in some ways, the whole social justice agenda is as, as boring and rigid and restrictive as any dogma in history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, and I particularly mind it when people say about fiction writers, you know, there's been this push that my uh, colleague Lionel Shriver has been particularly strong against, you know, this push to say you shouldn't write characters in a novel that aren't from oh. your background. And yeah, yeah. I think, don't you dare restrict what any man or woman can write in a novel. Don't you dare try to do that. Mm -hmm. This is the human imagination in one of its best playpens, you know. Yeah. Don't, don't tell people what to do when they're in it. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly don't do it if the stuff that you'd point to is so damn boring as, <laughs> as the perfect, you know, the perfect thing at the end of that. Yeah. And I'm very, I'm very struck by this, that, 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 that we need to recognize that what we're being offered is not some kind of liberation theology. It's a deeply restrictive ideology which will restrict human interactions mm -hmm. as well as the human imagination and the ability of us to flourish yeah most definitely i remember in the aftermath of the george floyd protests when they the, the voice actors of various cartoons oh, and yeah, yeah, tv yeah. shows started saying that they won't voice they won't voice uh cartoon character yeah, literally, yeah. The, literally guy from, cartoon. the guy from the simpsons suddenly like caved yeah, yeah simpsons um yeah. one of the guys who did uh the guy who voices cleveland um, right. from the, the Cleveland show. Cause it's, it's a, I think a white guy who voices a, a black guy and he, he stepped down and it's just, again, I'm just like, who does this help when they, you know, they canceled aunt Jemima. They wanted to get rid of uncle. That's I'm, right. That's right. I'm, That's I'm, right. Just, I know. I'm just like, how is this helping anybody, let alone a black person or, or, and which black people wanted this? Like, <laughs> right. Well, also, who by the this? way, I mean, the, the whole thing, first, exactly who wanted this? And also, isn't, isn't it fascinating that like, every culture has things that from the outside might look a bit weird? Like, you wouldn't want like, the eye of Sauron that is the internet to just sort of fixate on. Yeah. Like, there's lots of comedy, there's lots of thinking, there's lots of books that are. I don't know. They have things which you wouldn't want everyone in the world to focus on. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, th I, I see it all the time in literature. You, you sort of think, oh God, I hope they don't land on that because that book's really good. And the fact that that sentence exists in it, you know, I hope they don't find it or that yeah. book will be canceled. It's, it, it's, it's, it's such a, 
but you see, the problem is though is that it's uh, this eye of sauron i identify is 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 so strong that when it fixates on something it makes everything it does make everything scatter mm. when it when it li- alights on a subject and it's just so strange as you say it'll be like a syrup here it'll be <laughs> a rice here <laughs> And and none of it solves any of the damn problems. And, and and everybody always in the society that has them sort of like, well, no one's bothered by that. Like, we didn't have a... You know, who was campaigning to stop the Simpsons voiceover guy being the wrong ethnicity? Like, yeah. show me that person. Yeah. Yeah. It's very weird. It's very weird. And, it, it, and it's so weird as well, just because... Look, just I, I know, of course, just because something has happened or existed for a long time doesn't mean it should... Uh, continue in that way there's lots of examples where that's not the case but sure i mean the guy doing the voice of apu in the simpsons I, he'd been doing that for what over 20 years and no yeah. well okay let me not say no one virtually nobody ever found it <laughs> offensive or found it problematic or whatever nobody was bothered by aunt jemima smartly right. there's there's nothing even there, there wasn't even any sort of it's not even like yeah. she was she was some kind of caricature and it's just you know a, a smiling woman on the bottle yeah. And then the decision that okay, we need to. Well, this is this know. is unfortunately all the all the all the big overcorrections of our era are led by um, totally inappropriate people. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it, if you, I, I say in the manners of crowds that you know, if you wanted to ha- to change your your sexual ethics mm-hmm. between the sexes, I wouldn't start by doing Hollywood. I oh, yeah. I wouldn't start. <laughs> from the place that the term casting couch came from. I I wouldn't start there because it's highly unusual, highly atypical, and has a load of things built in that most ordinary bits of society do not have. Mm -hmm. You know, it is the place that most rewards beauty in the entire planet. So don't start there. Um, And a lot of the sort of me too thing starts to go wrong because stupidly it gets fixated on that sort of thing rather than on, more commonplace issues that could be addressed. Um, and I think to an extent this happens with the racism issue as well, is that is that we get it in these really atypical situations and 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 we end up focusing on the bit that we can solve. Mm-hmm. You know, Apu and the Simpsons, <laughs> uh, a bit of casting here. Like, again, Hollywood yeah. begging, begging to, you know, to to be able to survive this era um you know i don't think i don't think the films in the newly diverse oscars thing by the way the oscars were pretty diverse in the past if you look sure. at the best picture winners uh i don't think that the Os- i don't think that we get better films if we have racial quotas you know mm. I, I don't think we do i think all of it limits human accomplishment and the possibilities the potential of it i don't think the godfather would have been i don't think it could have been a better film (laughs) and i especially don't think it could have been a better film if you know some of the mob (laughs) were like randomly black or 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 like a white guy from essex i i don't know i don't i don't think it would have been better i I don't think schindler's list would have been a a, a, you know (laughs) a more profound movie if either the perpetrators or the victims have been more ethnically diverse. How about trans? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. It's just hell for the casting because you as JK Rowling with this recent no- novel she's written and under one of her pseudonyms, the allegation that went around online that one, that it, there's, there's a, there's a 
trans or a cross-dressing serial killer at some point, which is not a, the, what the book's about, it turns yeah. out. But the, like, the idea of this was it sent Twitter aflame and everyone went for J.K. Rowling again. And of course, you know that, I mean, like in future, we know when we watch the television that if there is a trans person, they can't, like, it'll be easy to do future murder mysteries, won't it? We'll know that the murderer cannot be the trans person. <laughs> it cannot be the trans person. Like it cannot be the black. It cannot cannot be the black person. Yeah. It cannot be the gay person. It's gonna have to be the per. The, you know the, the like the the one person they can make the bad person. Yeah. And it will be able to see it a mile off. It'll make it'll make <laughs> it'll make murder mysteries so it'll be even more boring than they are currently, in my view. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean it's. You know, I had I had an old um, an old friend from Ireland who died some years ago who who once said to me uh, one, of the, one of the most beautiful phrases I've ever heard in my life. He once said to me, you know, he said, you know, Douglas, I he's lived in a number of countries in his life. He said, you know, Douglas, he said, the the only the point to which you're really equal is when you just have to put up with the same crap that everyone else has to put up with. Yeah. And I really liked this as an analysis of you know what equality really meant for anyone mm -hmm. it was just that you have to it doesn't make life perfect it doesn't make it brilliant it's just starting from the same it's the same conditions as everyone else and having the same opportunities if at all possible and my god it's desirable mm -hmm. but also after that just realizing that you have to put up a load of crap like everyone else yeah no 100 percent Douglas, I want to be uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but can you tell me what is it that um, what is it that you are most optimistic about? Um, there's quite a lot of things actually. I'm I'm very optimistic about the ability of truth to cut through. Mm. I um, I think there are lots of problems that you know you can look at and you think, gosh, that's really hard to see how we solve that. You know, certain societies you can be in where you think, crikey, I just don't know how you're going to solve that mm -hmm. um but i do have a i do have a belief in and tr a trust in the truth as a concept that that it, it really does break through and that people can recognize it and that you know 99 people can be spouting lies and one person says something that, and people can recognize it to be true mm. and I've got an enormous amount of encouragement in recent years and the extent to which people have started to emerge who are doing this in different realms, in different ways, with different voices, different outlets, have started to break the consensus and that they're having a disproportionate impact. Mm. And it's because of this fact that it doesn't really matter if 99 people are spouting the dogma of the time and one says no, and the one person is onto something, mm. the one person will win. I like that. That's dope. That's inspiring, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, think it's, I think it's very, very important because, you know, it, it's important to live in truth. And it's important not, the corollary of that, it's important not to live among lies. Mm -hmm. It's important not to just spout the same lies that everyone else is told to spout. It's important, in short, not to be washed along by crowds, by mobs. Mm -hmm. I, I have enormous trust and faith in the idea that one individual can do an untold amount of good. True, a, a one individual can do an untold amount of evil and harm as well. That's, that's certainly true. But one person raising their voice 
against lies can break through. And um, I have, I just have a growing sense that that's happening and that we will be better off for it. And I, I'm encouraged as well by the fact that the people some, some time ago, I've said this, I think before, but some time ago I started um, uh, asking people in audiences, not just for events I was doing, but for events, you know, friends and colleagues were doing. I would ask, I would ask people, this is of course when you could still meet more than six people. <laughs> Uh, I would ask them, you know, why they'd come to an event or something. And I was just profoundly moved by the answers that I got because they were almost always fell into one of two uh, categories. The first was that people would sometimes say, I, I've come out because I, I you know, I, I enjoy watching videos at home, but I, I really want to meet, well, I want to be around other people who are thinking about the same things. By the way, the thing I loved about this was it's not the same as I want to be around other people who think like me. Yes. It's crucial. It's a wonderful, wonderful difference. It's not, I want to be with other members of the party. It's, I want to be around other people thinking about the same things. Mm -hmm. and that was the first thing I used to hear a lot. And the second thing was, I want that people would say some variation of the following, which was, I want to be um, near somebody who's telling the truth. Mm. And it would generally be because uh, they would say that I would like and as I say, this isn't a self-aggrandizing point. I'm talking about you know, and other colleagues and, and, and people I've done events with uh, and ones I've been in the audience of, you know, go to the pub afterwards, some of the audience and ask them, uh, talk with them and find out, you know, you'd, you'd get to this same second point and you'd ask, well, well what, why does it matter to you that you're in a room, you know, a theater or a hall with somebody telling the truth? And they'd, they'd almost always say, because I'd like to do it in my own life. You know, I'd like to be able to be honest with my girlfriend or boyfriend. I'd like to be, I'd like to be honest with people. I'd like to have meaningful, you know, deep friendships with people where we talk and we can talk and we exchange ideas and we, we don't tiptoe around each other. I want to, I want to live in honesty with my family and my friends uh, and my work colleagues mm -hmm. and others. I, I want to live a more truthful life. Was a, was 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 a long drawn out version of the answer, and I find this and found it profoundly moving, deeply humbling, actually, yeah. as well, um, because th that's something that c can make a difference. That really can make a difference. And whenever I heard that, I was just deeply moved, and I still am by it because I, I, this this has been my experience in my own life. Is that, for instance, to the reason why it's worth surrounding yourself with courageous people is because they will make you more courageous mm -hmm. just as you know, surrounding yourself with cowards will make you more cowardly. Yes. Surrounding yourself with liars will make you more of a liar, mm -hmm. more prone to lie. Um, it's worth, it's worth gravitating towards people saying things that are true because you will do it more. And, um, and have a better life for it. And I've just, I'm just, I, this really gives me optimism. And I, in my experience, all the smart young people, all the smart young people are on this side. Yeah. They are not, they're not joining, you know, momentum. They're not in some, <laughs> you know, they're not in some weird loser, you know, far left agitprop groups. That's where the dunces have gone, you know? That's where the dullards are. The people who, who want to police their friends' jokes and, yes. and language. And that, that's where the stupid people are going. <laughs> And the clever people of every background and a genuinely diverse group of people, mm -hmm. genuinely diverse, yeah. 
are coming to the right side on this. It's not a political side. Mm-hmm. It's highly diverse in thought as well as every other way. Yeah. The clever people are migrating in the right direction. They're realizing that what they're being offered is, is stultifying to their lives and to their souls. And that they, they are starting to realize, they're starting to gravitate towards people who they recognize will help them out and help them into being the people they should be. And I, I just, I think it's wonderful. I'm not a natural, I'm not an optimist by nature. <laughs> deeply, deeply optimistic about that and the potential that people have as a result. Fantastic. Douglas, where can people find you online? Well, uh, they can find me on Twitter at uh, Douglas K. Murray. Uh, and uh, they can find my website, uh, douglasmurray.net. And uh, that has updates on everything. And of course, all my books are available on Amazon and uh, all Barnes and Noble and Waterson's and all the other sites. And, uh, and the latest, The Madness of Crowds, which addresses some of the things that we've been talking about today, uh, uh, is out now in an expanded edition. And I'm happy to say it's a bestseller in the US and the UK at the moment, which is awesome. whatever the author wants, because it means you're actually getting read. And you never know, you never know that's the case when you're an author. <laughs> you never know whether you're just writing for a small group of friends. But, but yeah, that, and I, um, I'm very lucky uh, in, in, in being not just an author and a writer who can say what I think, but also being read. Most so, definitely. Yeah. Madness of Crowds, highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. And um, if you get the Audible version, if you get the audio book, you get to hear uh, Douglas rapping as well. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I think, uh, I think uh, uh, professionals are safe. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I think awesome. <laughs> no Douglas. threat to the professionals' life <laughs> livelihood. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's Such been, a pleasure. It's been an abs- absolute pleasure speaking with you. Such a pleasure. Likewise. See you soon. Talk soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.